time for us to uh, f- talk to one of our literary festival authors who's visiting Hong Kong. We're delighted to be joined in the studio by John Lanchester. John, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me, Karen. Thanks for coming. So we're also on Facebook Live. If you go to my Facebook page, Karen, on RTHK Radio 3, you can see as well as hear John there. So, John, you've already been pretty busy. You, you had an event already um, yesterday, I believe. Um, it, was time it blurs with jet lag. I think <laughs> it, it was yesterday. My, my brain's going to arrive in the same time zone any minute now. Yes, yes I it mean, was yesterday. It's a few. It's like a, an hour for every every a, a day for every hour of time difference. So well, that's the thing they tell us now. We yeah. didn't know that before, but yeah, and it feels like it too. You yeah, know, by the told, time you have to leave, you'll be all adjusted. My it, brain will be in time zone. And I'll be heading back. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, first of all, before we t- talk about the event, uh, the event was about the wall, which is your your novel. Tell us a bit about the wall for for listeners who don't know it well it's a novel it came to me in a dream oddly enough it's the first one of my books that ever did um it started with this image of stand a person standing on his own on a wall in the dark and cold and had this dream over a series of nights and i realized what i was imagining was a world after catastrophic climate change and um so the wall of the title is um a wall that goes all the way around the island of great britain and um basically it's there to keep keep out two things there to keep out the higher sea levels um, and it's there to keep out the people fleeing, starving, desperate millions of people fleeing other parts of the world who are trying to get over this wall into this safer place. This sounds um, s- strangely familiar <laughs> in it, terms of what, some of what we see in real life now, right? Some of it. Um, and it's partly, I mean, there's uh, quite a lot of Hong Kong in the book because I grew up here. I was here in the 70s. And um, the big thing in the 70s was the the boat people. That yes, was a huge topic all through Southeast Asia. And one of the odd things that was... Um, forgotten, I think, during the migrant crisis in Europe in 2015, is that the world, it's not, you know, the 70s weren't that long ago, um, but it was as if it was it disappeared into a kind of amnesiac space. And I have very vivid memories of that. My last summer in Hong Kong, I was 17, I did volunteer work in a refugee camp out in West Kowloon, and, you know, saw at first hand that thing of starving, desperate people who had, who had fled um, to a safer place. And that's definitely... Um, a memory that's in the book. It's also, by the way, uh, one of the th- things that's odd that we've forgotten is that it, that story ended positively. You know, at the time, people were saying, well, we can't take them in. There are so many. There are, there are thousands. There are tens of thousands. There are hundreds of thousands. Well, actually, in fact, two million people were successfully resettled, resettled. throughout the developed world um, during that refugee crisis. It was actually a huge success. And I think it's a strange, strange fact that we've, you know, we've forgotten that. Mm. I think, you know, whenever we hear about refugee crises, especially when there are large numbers of refugees, there's definitely a dehumanization of people. They just become refugees in inverted commas, commas and not human beings. Yeah, in, in, my, in my novel, um, they just call them the others. The others, The people right. feeling the others. I think part of that, I think there's this sort of impulse in us to... If you're if you're in a terrible situation, if you have to in effect push someone off a life raft, which is sometimes what's happening in these situations, with you know you can't we're safe, but you can't be otherwise. We'll stop being safe. If you have to push someone off a life raft. One of the things you can't do is let yourself see the common humanity you have. You can't say, well, these people are our brothers and sisters, because once you admit that, you've admitted they have a claim on you. I think it's a very clear pattern in history and politics that one of the ways that a culture, people persuade themselves to, to, to exclude and to refuse to offer help is to tell yourself that actually we have nothing in common. We are not like you. We are not the same under the skin. And that, that's a very common thread, I think, through, throughout, 
throughout history and unfortunately in the present as well. Yeah, and it's kind of scary that a, that a person can do that so easily. It's almost like flipping a switch to say, I no longer recognise your humanity. And also, I agree, and it's also scary that it's a thing that can be incited and egged on, and it's a thing we've repeatedly seen. Um, unfortunately, in the modern world, you know, in, in places like um, former Yugoslavia um, and... Um, in, in Rwanda and places like that, where you can ac actually have um, mechanisms that cultivate. You know, I mean, those are strange stories, formerly Yugoslavia. You had people living next to each other who didn't know each other's ethnicity, right. said Krat Bosnia, they didn't know, didn't care. And within a couple of years of deliberate propagandizing, people were actually hating their neighbours. And in fact, it's a particularly interesting case because there used to be a language called Serbo Croat. Yes. You could go to university and do a degree in Serbo Croat. You could do that in the 1980s, and now those are two different languages. Serbian right. and Croatian have actually split, and that wasn't a, that wasn't some natural process. That wasn't some you know, organic evolution. Mm. That was a thing that was actually done deliberately as a matter of, of politics. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, what else you're doing at the Lit Fest tonight. You're part of a panel event called "The Looming Shadow of Dystopia." So we're getting really depressing here today on the show. So tell us about that. Um, yes, with Renee, uh, who's um, done a hugely successful and very, very good graphic novel of um, Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale. And um, uh, so we'll be talking about these things. I mean, one of the things that's uh, interesting about dystopia is one of the things in my book, I think, is that um, although it's a, a picture of a grim and dark and depressing world, it's meant to incite the opposite. You know, I want to paint it black in order to make people see that that's a world we don't have to make. That's a product of our choices. My story is really about climate and we have a lot of agency still in our hands about that. We don't have to go down the, the worst path. And I think sometimes, um, I think it's true of Margaret Atwood's work as well, that it's a sort of um, dystopias aren't necessarily automatically depressing because they're an incitement to action in the present. They can often have this thing about this is what happened if we don't dot 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 you know if we don't act if we don't see if we don't acknowledge the circumstances if we don't face the truth um and i think that you can have a kind of a curious thing um the poet philip larkin once said that a poem about depression is a positive thing because right. it's a kind of creative act to make it and i think um a dark a fairly dark dystopian world that's imagined can actually be a positive thing because it's an incitement to stop it from happening mm. because in your dystopian world it's the it's the end product of everything that has led up to it so when we see it now we can see ah oh, we could there is an alternative to this dystopian world well i think one of the things about climate change um there's a french aphorist called la rochefoucauld who once said that death like the sun cannot be looked at directly you can't look it straight in the eye i think climate change is a bit like that it's quite hard it's quite hard to face the thought of global, systemic, irreversible, catastrophic change. I mean, why would you want to think about that? Right. Um, and I think part of the reason why there's an important role for imaginative work in respect of climate change is to, in a sense, make us face it. You know, this is what happens if we don't act. Mm. And I think it's important to have that moment of... I think without that moment of recognition, we won't start to resist it, to fight it, to try and stop it from happening. Do you think it's also such a big thing that it's impossible as a human to grasp it in its entirety? It's just too much. That was, we need little bites of understanding for, for enable, to enable us to you know, feel something emotionally or, or make some connection. I think that's right. I think it's also one of the reasons that, you know, 
I mean, I find it easy to understand climate change denial because, in a way, why wouldn't you know? If we could deny it, it would be great. It yes, would be fantastic be if it weren't true. Wake up in the morning, the front page of the paper says, you know, scientists admit they've got it all wrong. You know, um, and but unfortunately, we know that's not the case. And I, I, th I think that's exactly right. And I think one of the reasons there's a shift in momentum around the subject is these sort of little pieces of bad news that keep accumulating. You know, you look at the map of the world. There was um, a point last around last. Christmas where you know, you're looking at a global heat map and you had the hottest day in the history of Australia and the coldest day in the history of the American Midwest at the same same day mm. and you could just that's that's not right you know and the freak weather we've been having everywhere, everywhere yeah um, and I think those the, those sort of um, it's not one huge moment of recognition it's not like in some movie where the you know the hero and heroine suddenly realizes something I think it's this gradual drip by drip thing that's that's making it cut through to people that they just sort of have no choice than to face the fact. Mm. How, how important is it when you're writing uh, something that's dystopian, that's dark, to offer hope? Um, because I mean really hope is the thing that keeps humanity going. I think in relation to the climate I'd, I'd put it more strongly even than that. I think hope is a moral injunction on us. I think we're obliged to feel hopeful um, because if we don't we'll give in to despair and if we give in to despair we won't act you know i think there's a very dark path about um oh there's nothing we can do well that guarantees the worst outcome that that feeling and so hope is actually something we owe we owe ourselves and we owe our descendants we owe future generations to feel helpful and by the way it'd be one thing if the scientists were saying you know it's doomed it's finished it's all over then yeah okay it'd be time to despair but that's not what the science says, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the big UN body which sort of supervises the science, and their report um, about this time last year from Katowice in Poland was talking about um, the prospect of holding the world, world to 1.5 degrees of warming since the Industrial Revolution, which is no paradise that we've had one degree already. Another 0.5 degree leaves the oceans warming for centuries to come because of residual heat effects, but it's still, you know, that's tens of millions of lives sa saved, according to the N UN. For even from the Paris target of two degrees centigrade, it's tens of millions of lives saved from catastrophic negative impacts, but every tenth of a degree saves, saves millions and millions of people. And I think the fact that the science is very, very clearly saying it's a moment of hope, it's a moment of opportunity, and that actually makes it a kind of obligation on us not to despair. Mm. So you've ha you've obviously had to do a lot of research into the climate science as well in, t in order to write this novel, right? Yes, I did. But it's a funny thing in a novel, you know, you've got to be careful with research because if you if you don't watch it, you end up using it, you know, right. whether you should or not. So I always say, you know, be careful before you re research it. You know, if, if you go on a research trip to Mumbai, your you know your characters end up going to Mumbai too, even if in fact they should just stay in Discovery Bay where they belong. You know? <laughs> um, and so I did do quite a lot, but then I actually basically left most of it out. I think you get a curious thing in fiction that if the writer knows something, mm. they have permission to leave it out and the reader can kind of tell as sort of three-dimensionality to it. Yeah, yeah. And and also you're, you're, you are writing a novel, not a science treati treatise or... Science. Yes, and there's a funny thing in fiction. You know, you can do pretty much anything in fiction, um, but there one of the things you can't do is explain. Mm -hmm. You know, if characters start explaining things to each other, there's a thing in science fiction, they call it, tell me, Professor. That's oh, when one character turns okay. says, tell me, Professor, what exactly it is. Like, I'm glad you asked me that question. <laughs> and the other character answers and the reader falls asleep. Yes. Um, so you do have to watch that and you particularly have to watch things that, as where you think up something clever and then explain it at length to the reader. I mean, that completely kills 
a story. Explanation is one of the. It's a fairly short. Mm. It's a fairly short list of absolute no-nos in fiction, but but explanation is one of the things that's on it. Right. Oh, interesting. So, can you tell us what you're working on next? Well, I, working is an awfully strong word <laughs> with uh, fiction. There's a famous story of, of um, an overheard conversation at a pub in London. Two two men sitting at the bar. The first man says, "I'm writing a novel," and the second man says. Neither am I. <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid there's an awful lot of human truth summed up in that. But I, I have a book of stories that I'm sort of on the edge of, basically ghost stories that I'm on the edge of finishing. Oh, great. Any, um, like, finished date or is it...? Well, I, ho I was hoping to have it out. You know, publishing is uncannily slow. It's mm. a slow bit. I've, and I've worked in publishing and I couldn't tell you why it takes them a year to get a book out held a gun to my head and demanded an explanation I couldn't give you one. The fact is it does it takes about a year so I've just handed a version of it over so I'm hoping okay. it's out before Christmas next year because I think it's quite a good time to bring out spooky stories. Yes, spooky stories. stories. I love spooky stories. And then what are you reading? Is there anything that you've read lately that you really love? Um, what's the this sounds so terrible. I'm actually reading Shakespeare's histories at the moment. Interesting. Um, because um, the thing, if you study things at university, you go through a long recovery period when you just can't look at them again yes, yes. without feeling ill and having to lie down. And I've just got back to the point that I can read things, you know, as a without university. Without feeling nauseous. Uh, yeah, exactly. I was at university a trillion years ago and I've forgotten absolutely everything. And the good news about that is I can now reread things I study. So I'm reading Shakespeare's History Plays. Partly, I suppose, it suddenly occurs to me as I speak that we're going through a kind of chaotic and divided time in Britain over Brexit, the country's in this sort of appalling state of um, paralysis and, you know, division. And that's where Shakespeare's plays begin. They begin yeah. during the Civil War and everybody's furious with everyone. And um, there, you know, um, and there's a, a very nice thing about being able to read something purely for pleasure, you know, and you kind of recover that state of just reading things for pleasure that education takes away for several decades. True. You don't have to write an essay about it afterwards. Uh, and you can forget all of it. Yeah. Exactly. I, I studied English at university. I remember reading Beowulf, which at the time I really enjoyed. I probably wouldn't Actually, I probably would never read it again. But yeah, there's a wonderful Seamus Heaney translation. Of oh, Beowulf, okay. Maybe I'll do that. That's probably going to be. And there's also a really wonderfully terrible film. What's it called? It's got Antonio Banderas in it. It was based on a Michael Crichton novel. Oh. And it's it's the idea is of the it's the kind of Ur story that got turned into Beowulf, and he's an Arab poet who travels with a bunch of Vikings, and they right. have to fight these sort of bear. I mean, it sounds and it's. I, I will it sounds Google completely it. terrible. It is semi-terrible, but it's also brilliant. Called the Thirteenth Warrior. Okay. Uh, so, if you're for for a Beowulf fan, I, I strongly recommend it. Okay, wonderful. I'm sure that it's probably like tons of Beowulf fans out there among our listeners. Yeah, really. The, the switchboard's lighting exactly. up with curious complaints yeah. with all these with all these like requests for. Yeah, and uh, then she got fired after making a controversial show about Beowulf. <laughs> Well, listen, John, thank you so much for coming in. It's been really fun talking to you. And your event is tonight uh, at the Literary Festival. Let me just tell people where where and when it is. Um, the Looming Shadow of Dystopia at the Fringe Club tonight at 8.30. Um, I don't know if there are tickets available, but if there are, you should definitely get along to to um, go and see John with the other panellists. And if you want more information about the festival very nice, easy website, festival.org.hk. So, John, enjoy the rest of your stay. Hope you get over your jet lag, and great to have you on the program. Thank you very much.
Thank you so much. And we've been speaking with John Lanchester, who is a writer who's participating in this year's Hong Kong International Literary Festival.